nobody likes a tattletale. Or at least that's what I remember learning as a child. Maybe you did too. Maybe it's something you tell your children or grandchildren today. Now, I'm not sure my parents ever actually said it to me, but I heard it often because I was a child who was deeply committed to following rules and doing things the right way. But I was also a child who was afraid of confrontation. So this meant that whenever I observed, you know, an injustice, like someone saying bad words or someone playing with my ball on the playground or even shock horror, putting the crayons back in the crayon box in the wrong color order, I brought my grievance to an adult responsibly. One might say I tattled. And now I know I'm not really alone here because if you're a person who has young children in their life, you may experience your fair share of tattling. But the thing is, if you're a teacher or a lawyer or a business person or really any other kind of person moving about in this world, you probably do too. You see, as I have grown and matured, I like to think that I grew out of the whole tattling thing, but the truth is that I just found a whole new world of ways in which to do it. So now, instead of tattling to a teacher, I can complain with my friends over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. I can have a private word about a coworker with my supervisor or a colleague. I can post vague and passive-aggressive messages to Facebook. I can air my grievances in one of those parking lot meetings that takes place after the official meeting is over. You know what I'm talking about. I can even yell into the void of Twitter, calling out whoever and whatever I want, whenever I want. And each of these tactics does essentially the same thing as tattling, right? It brings that conflict into the light of the day. It assumes that someone else is actually causing that conflict. And then it essentially admits my own unwillingness to actually do anything real to resolve it. <laughs> See, all of those actions that are so familiar to us they make us feel better, right? They make us feel as if we have done something. But do they fix anything? Do they resolve the conflict? Do they bring about reconciliation and strengthen our communities? I'm gonna go out on a limb and say no. The real work of reconciliation, of resolving conflict and seeking peace, it just takes so much more work than that. It's messy and it's frequently uncomfortable and frankly, most of us would rather not bother with it if we're honest with ourselves. In many cases, we'd rather just ignore the problem, set it aside, just let it be. Jesus understood that about us. You see, while conflict within our families and communities may feel especially prevalent today, it's nothing new. Over the past month, we've heard powerful stories about conflict from the Hebrew Bible, those stories from the lives of Jacob and Joseph and Moses. The Apostle Paul, he dedicated entire letters to conflict. And of course, it even occurred in those first communities of Jesus' disciples. So throughout this month, we at Dunwoody United Methodist Church are taking a look at what Jesus had to say about resolving conflict in community. Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, we'll dive deeply into some of Christ's wisdom about facing up to the conflicts in our midst, about offering forgiveness, and about encouraging fairness. We're going to talk about why sometimes we can't just let things be. 
and are instead invited and empowered to be bridge builders, peacemakers, justice seekers, and reconcilers. This week, we begin with a passage from Matthew chapter 18. So at this point in the Bible, Jesus has been traveling around for some time now. He's been healing and performing miracles and also preaching. Crowds are starting to show up to hear him teach. And so he's had the opportunity to kind of paint a picture of how God wants people to live together. He often does this in parables, right? He uses illustrations to help his followers understand God's vision for God's kingdom. And in fact, the passage that we read today, it comes directly after a parable that might be familiar to you, the parable of the lost sheep. Here, Jesus is helping his disciples see God as the shepherd who leaves his flock of 99 to return one lost sheep to the fold. But whereas Jesus uses kind of abstract stories to talk about things like faith and evangelism in Matthew's gospel, he is shockingly direct when it comes to speaking about conflict. Here's what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know about you, but hearing these words even makes me a little bit uncomfortable because there's so much to unpack and so much com confrontation, right? So much confrontation. But Jesus is actually making a point about the importance of facing up to the conflicts in our communities, not out of a sense of justice for justice's sake, but because facing up to conflict is the only way to reconciliation and peace. So what exactly does facing up to conflict mean? Well, in this passage from Matthew, facing up to conflict means not only acknowledging that it exists, right? Admitting to our hurt and the ways that we have hurt others. It also means owning our own power to actually do something about it. So Jesus begins by urging us to take a specific action. If another member of the church sins against you, he says, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Yeah, you don't get more direct than that. And if you're anything like me, the idea of confronting someone one-on-one -on -one is intense and maybe even intimidating. Instead, I know I'm much more likely to revert to my childhood ways and tattle in any one of those ways that I mentioned before. Family systems has a word for this. Family systems theory refers to this practice as triangling or triangulating. 
Instead of going directly to the person with whom the conflict lies, we humans are frequently inclined to create triangles, right? We speak to a third party as a way of venting our frustration and avoiding any kind of actual real confrontation. Now, of course, triangling does not resolve conflict in close-knit communities like churches and families. It only prolongs it. And speaking of churches and families, it bears mentioning here that Jesus does not encourage us to pick fights with just anyone in the universe who we think commits a wrong. Rather, we are meant to address the conflicts that inevitably arise within our very own communities. So you'll notice in this scripture passage, Jesus refers to a member of the church who might wrong you. He uses that phrase, a member of the church. Now, that might strike you as funny because at this point in history, there is no church, right? At least not a church like we know it. So what does it mean for Jesus to be talking to us about how to resolve conflict with members of our church? Well, some translations of this passage have a different spin and they might shed a little light. Those translations say, if a brother sins against you, they're using an English word that comes closer to the original Greek word, adelphos. You see, there's a presumption of intimacy in the community that Jesus describes and that Jesus wants to foster. Within this type of group, people are related to and obligated to one another as if they are family. They can be honest with one another because they have equal interest in the preservation and the health of the group. And perhaps that's why Jesus gives us his second piece of instruction. If you are not listened to, he says, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. To us who are familiar with detective movies and courtroom dramas, this seems perfectly logical, right? We need witnesses to make our case. But Jesus is really suggesting something deeper than that. You see, in a community as close as family, conflict doesn't just affect us. It affects more than the parties in question. It moves throughout the members of the group, and it manifests in ways that might not be expected. Jesus understands the stakes. That unresolved conflict has the potential to rip even the closest community apart. That it can't be swept under the rug. That it can't just be left to be. And so he ramps up his instructions bit by bit. He tells his followers to face up to conflict with one person, then it moves to two or three people, then to the whole community if agreement still can't be reached. It's clear that Jesus isn't going to let us off the hook that easy. After all, for Jesus, resolving conflict isn't about creating what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called a negative peace. That's a peace in which we just experience the absence of tension. Rather, Christ is calling his followers, calling us, to the ministry of reconciliation as a way of bringing even more lost sheep into the fold. Here he says that if the offender refuses to listen to the church, that person should be as to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So shunning, right? But not so fast, because who are Gentiles and tax collectors in the Gospels? Those on the margins, sure, but they're also those who we're called to minister to. So by calling us to face up to the conflicts in our midst, Jesus is calling us to take responsibility for and experience the joy of freedom and reconciliation. Reconciliation between siblings, within communities, 
reconciliation as an outstretched hand of invitation to those who stand on the margins. Now, in a few moments, we will celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion. And if you're a person who's been receiving communion in the United Methodist Church and hearing that familiar liturgy your whole life, you may have gotten to the point where you kind of just let your brain gloss over all of the beats of it. But today, I invite you to listen closely. And if you do, you will find that Jesus' call to face up to the conflicts in our communities is so strong that it's baked right into the sacrament. As we are invited to approach God's table, we are called to confess our sins to God and to one another. We are urged to repent, to change our ways. We are invited to share words and gestures of peace. That handshake is a mark of reconciliation. We're called to reconcile with each other before we take the bread and the cup. At its heart, communion is a way of celebrating God's reconciling work in the world. And it is a way of reminding ourselves that we serve a God who does not shy away from conflict, but faces right up to it. Working throughout history, through flawed individuals, through the prophets, through Jesus Christ himself, to repair what is broken, to restore what is lost, to unite what has been divided. And so, friends, as we prepare to share in this Feast of Reconciliation, we get to claim the power that Christ gives us to be peacemakers, to be proactive reconcilers. We get to decide anew, every time, what kind of community we will be. Will we be a people who are content to hide our conflicts and merely let them be? Or will we be a family of faith? that knows each other and loves each other with enough strength that we can face up to the conflicts that will inevitably arise between us with courage and integrity and grace. I know what my prayer for Dunwoody United Methodist Church is. I think with all due humility that it's what Jesus desires for all of his followers. And I hope that it's your prayer too. May it be so. Amen.